our way through the, the book of Acts, uh, but as we come to Easter, we're actually taking a little divert from that to look at uh, the events that are central to the gospel and uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So we'll be looking this year through Mark's gospel, uh, both this week and also our Good Friday service, which will be at 8.30 here, and our Easter Sunday service here at 10 a.m. But it's also not really a major diversion from where we've been going in Acts, because these are the events that caused the people to take that good news out. If it wasn't for these events, the book of Acts wouldn't exist, would it? The church wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here. So it's a joy to, to be reminded at the central heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to the world for the set purpose to lay down his life for others. So as we come to God's word, let's open up in prayer as we depend upon him. Heavenly Father, We thank you that as we look to your word, it is indeed your word. It is your living and active word given to us, communicating the nature of the world in which we live, telling us truly who you are and truly what we are like. And as we see truly who we are deep at the core of our heart, people who desire to live independent, rebellious lives, Uh, We can give thanks as we see the good news put forward that Jesus has come. He has borne our penalty on our behalf. As we look to your word this morning by your spirit, teach us, encourage us, admonish us, change us, transform us to be more like Jesus. Help us to love and see more clearly what you have done and give you thanks for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The dingo took my baby. I'm not reporting news. Very familiar line, but in our normal everyday Sunday congregation, the events that that is related to was before most of you were born. That was 1980. Lindy Chamberlain, the death of her daughter Azaria. Yet it's a story which we all know, whether it be through miniseries, movie, person on the back desk might want to put the change back to that. Originally, Lindy Chamberlain was given a life sentence for the death of Azaria only eight years later in 1988 to be acquitted of that. Eight years of being in prison until you're actually told, no, you're not supposed to be there. But the case wasn't entirely closed until 2012 when the coroner came to the final conclusion that yes, that baby was taken by a dingo. 32 years between the event and it coming to a close. But anyone who's lived anywhere in those 32 years, which is pretty much all of you now, so you're now back on board, right from day one, there were mixed views in the community about what happened. Everyone came to their own conclusion, their own verdicts regarding what happened to the baby. Were the parents involved? Were they innocent? Were they guilty? But unless you are part of the Chamberlain family or you are a judge, your opinions and your verdicts counted very little. It didn't have any personal implications for your life regardless of what opinion you held. But today, as we look at Jesus Christ on trial, 
which still today people have a mixed verdict. Who is Jesus? That is not without personal implications, your verdict you reach about who Jesus is. Matter of fact, it's as serious as life and death, blessing or curse, hope or despair. Some of the things that we look at this morning are part of the final two days. I'm reluctant to say final two days of Jesus' life because he rose three days later and then he continues to leave today, but you know what I mean. Now in the Bible you've got five biographies of Jesus' life written by either personal witnesses or those who had access to the personal witnesses that describe his life and his ministry. Only Matthew and Luke speak about Jesus' birth including the announcement from the angels that he shall be named Jesus because he will save a people from their sins. But between there and the age 30, with the exception of the little interruption at age 9 where he's teaching in the temple and people are astounded at his understanding and his teaching of the scriptures, there's not much there until age 30 when he enters into three years of public ministry. And each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, place majority of their focus on those three years. Within these three years, we see Jesus teaching publicly before small audiences, large crowds. We see him demonstrating his power over the human body to heal just by speaking the word. We see his power and authority over demons by just saying, be gone, and they are gone. We see his power and authority over all creation as in the middle of a storm he just says, be still, and instantly it is still. He also made big claims that he was the one and only way to God. We all recognise that we had a disconnect from God because of our rebellion. We were, we were unworthy, we were rebels deserving of judgement. And he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the solution to that very deepest problem that you all have. And throughout those three years, there were, no surprises, mixed verdicts. Some were surrounding him with amazement. Others with complete and utter contempt. It was commonly those who were on the fringes who actually flocked to Jesus, who recognised who he was and responded favourably. Yet strangely and sadly, it was often the religious leaders or the religious, like the Pharisees, who wanted him off the scene completely. But you've got to ask, why would anyone want him dead? There's one who has got such power and such care and has come to save us from the deepest problem, deepest need we all have. What do you make of Jesus? What's your verdict? This morning we'll look at other people's verdicts. We'll see in the opening verses the verdict of the religious leaders as we ask the question, who really deserves death? Have a little look at Peter and his denial as a follower of Jesus Christ. But then also the verdict of Pilate In chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, where Jesus becomes the substitute for the death sentence. 
So who deserves death? Now, leading up until these events, for quite some time, the religious leaders have been seeking a plan to have Jesus dead, to have him killed. Jesus had shared in a last supper with his closest followers where he told them that he was going to be going away from them. He was going to suffer and die. He's going to go return to the Father. But one from amongst his 12 closest was going to betray him. Judas accepted the offer of cash to betray Jesus, to hand him over to the religious leaders. Remember, this is the same Jesus who multiple times throughout his life and ministry had said, it is necessary, essential, that the Son of Man be handed over and suffer and die. As he's there in the garden of Gethsemane praying, saying, God, if it be possible, take this cup from me. This cup which was symbolised of the wrath of God because Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross to bear the full wrath of God's wrath for the sin of mankind. But as he prays, he goes on to say, yet not my will, but yours. You see, Jesus is painfully and very clearly aware of the path that lies ahead. There's nothing coming up that's coming as a bit of a surprise to him. When Jesus is arrested, he's entirely calm. He has to tell Peter, hey, settle down. Easy on the ear business. Yet all of his closest followers at that moment flee from Jesus. Peter kind of hangs off but at a distance, but no one sticks with him. As they take him off to the high priest and where the Sanhedrin were gathered, as they prepared for these events, there's a couple of historical things we need to take into place to understand what we're looking at. But not only to understand, but also to see the setting in which they've come into. The Mishnah is a set of Jewish writings, which is a written version of some of the oral traditions and teachings of the rabbis at the time. Some of the things that shed particular light on our passage were in the Sanhedrin in tractates 4 to 7 contain information like you can't hold a trial at night. In a case where it is capital punishment, a death sentence, you cannot reach that verdict until the second day of a trial. Trials cannot be held on the day before a Sabbath or a feast day. Any witnesses had to be warned that they had to give a true first-hand account. Trials couldn't be held in the palace of a high priest. And to convict someone of blasphemy, they had to be guilty of reviling the divine name. Then in addition to those, under Rome, Jews had no authority to put someone to death. And nowhere in the scriptures was crucifixion a prescribed punishment. Now, not all of these were necessarily violated, but but all of these sort of bear some light on some of them were indeed directly violated, completely thrown out the window, which shows you something of how keen they were to have Jesus crucified, that they would even violate their own rules in order to achieve it. 
I don't think he violated things like they're not having a trial at night. As they gather together at night, it seems more like they're just trying to get their facts straight. They come together and say, what is our case? What are the charges we're going to bring against this Jesus? They were pretty clear on the outcome. We want him dead. Now, what evidence are we going to bring together to secure our case? It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. So here they were gathered, seeking testimony based on what they, everyone could see and know. What can we bring against this guy? Nothing, they concluded. So when they can't come up with the actual evidence that actually testifies against him, if they've got an end goal in mind, what the, the only thing they can do is to start fabricating, manufacturing a story that's going to give them the end result that they want. While they couldn't find agreement on anything, probably the best case they raised was this one. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands and in three days I'll build another, not made with hands. But even on this, they didn't agree. Now it's quite possible that as they were putting forward this case, the person putting it forward might actually think they were truthfully representing something. There are elements of truth in the statement. After all, Jesus did himself say, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But as that's recorded in John's Gospel, John also says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body. Nowhere did Jesus say he was going to personally destroy the Jerusalem temple. He did predict that the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed And certainly nowhere did he say that he or anyone would rebuild the Jerusalem temple. So when they can't come to a conclusion, they think, let's go with a direct question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That's a pretty pointed question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the one that we have been longing for and waiting for? And are you the son of the blessed? Are you claiming to be the son of God? That in and of itself may not be a question of are you claiming to be God? Because even that title son of God was used of some of the kings in the Old Testament. But they're certainly saying are you claiming to be the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Christ? And Jesus' response is probably one of the most profound statements he makes, particularly before a Jewish audience regarding his identity. Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now he pieces together from Psalm 110 verse 1, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He says, I am that one. That psalm had been regularly known as being a psalm speaking of the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am that one. And then he takes from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. The one who's coming with the clouds. The one who has all authority. The one who has an everlasting kingdom. The one who's coming with the clouds. Who will judge every person, the living and the dead including those now who are accusing him of blasphemy. 
If you're looking to get out of trouble, that's not the answer to give. It's even possible as Jesus initially started by saying, I am, that he may have even been invoking the divine name from from Exodus 3.14. Or he may just be confirming. Often he just says, you say I am, but here he says, I am. He confirms, he takes it, he names it as his own. And as they hear these words, they conclude, this is blasphemy. This man deserves to die. It leads to mockery, beating, spitting, covering his face, saying, prophesy. Now, if you're you're big and mighty, you say, oh, you prophesy, you tell us who hit you, who struck you. And the irony is, as they say, prophesy, beat him, spit on him, mock him. While he remains silent, they and he are fulfilling things that Jesus himself did prophesy. As Jesus was called to give an account for who he is, he didn't shy away. However, the same certainly could not be said of the usually forthright Peter. Now, Peter's a man who had a lot of big highlights as a follower of Jesus, and he had some pretty significant lowlights. He's the same one who in one breath could say, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And then in a few breaths later say, rebuke Jesus. When Jesus puts forward, my plan is to suffer and die. But now even to deny him completely. Now while we often pick on Peter and say, oh Peter, he's the guy who denied Jesus. Remember when Jesus was arrested, every single one of the disciples went nowhere near him. Peter was actually the closest to at least staying some proximity to him. And it's worth going back to verse 30 of chapter 14. Jesus said to him, this is to Peter, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, that is Peter, said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It's not just Peter who said he wouldn't deny them, that they were willing to die beforehand. All of them said that. And as Jesus arrests, all of them do the runner. Peter hangs off at a distance. And Peter does deny him exactly as it's predicted that he would. The very first opportunity, Peter has a chance to stand for Jesus. He denies him. And it's not even in an intimidating environment. It's not like he's being high pressured from someone with a lot of authority. It comes through some questions from a slave girl. And the question initially is pretty basic. It's, it's not even a con- particularly convicting question. It's just like, we've seen you with him. So what? Thousands have been seen with him. That's not condemning evidence on its own to be seen with Jesus. But look at his response. I don't know you. I don't even understand what you're saying. This is the one that that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this guy. And he's like, 
Don't know what you're talking about. Don't have a clue. Don't understand what you're talking. Makes me think a little bit back to when I was in Mexico about 20 years ago and often we'd have people approach us who wanted money. I didn't know much Spanish, but I knew the good old no habla espanol, which means I don't know Spanish. And that was probably almost the limit of my Spanish that I knew, but it was very useful. But then they turned and asked for money in English. And I panicked, so I just went, no hablo espanol, even though they knew that I understood every single word they said. This is the same Peter who previously said, I would die before I would deny you. He's like, don't know what you're talking about. Don't know this bloke. No connection whatsoever. Then verse 68, a rooster crows, Peter still doesn't flinch. He's heard Jesus telling him, the rooster's gonna, before a rooster crows twice, you'll have denied me three times. It's crowed once after he's denied him. That doesn't seem to throw Peter at all. Then the prayer bring escalates. The slave goes and says, he's one of them. He's one of the disciples, one of the close followers of Jesus. And the crowds turn and they recognize the same. They say, yeah, he is. He's one of them. Then possibly the lowest moment in Peter's public life where he not only de- denies it, he actually invokes a curse on himself say, I will be cursed if I'm lying to you here. I do not even know this man. There's probably an element of truth in that. If Peter really knew fully who Jesus was, there's no way you'd respond like that. But as the rooster crowed a second time, Peter recalled what Jesus said and understood what he had done and how he had spoken of the one that he had been with, who had taught him so many wonderful things. He'd seen what he had done and he wept bitterly. Following Jesus will take you into hard places. It'd be a complete lie to say that following Jesus, everything's going to be sweet and easy all of the time. Israel Falawa is realising at the moment that sometimes to follow and to stand for Jesus can take you into difficult places. And you've got to choose. Will I stick with Jesus? Will I reject him? Will I stand for him? Will I deny him? Like Peter, there'll be times when it actually seems attractive not to be associated with. But exactly like Peter, to turn and deny the one who has given his life for you will lead to guilt and sorrow if you do. It's quite sad that we can probably identify quite easily with Peter. Maybe times when we could have said something very clearly and we chose not to. Probably there's a sense of rejoicing seeing the grace that Jesus had with him to restore him. But as we see Peter's very poor response in answering and standing for Jesus, standing between two cases of Jesus being very plain and forespoken in who he was. This time we come to the morning where Jesus before Pilate. If you put the Sanhedrin account and the Pilate account side by side, particularly when it comes to the questioning and the answers and the response, they're pretty much identical. 
And they all centre around this question of, are you a king? Before the Sanhedrin, that was more of a religious Messiah question. Before Pilate, it's more of a political question. But that was at the heart of the question. It wasn't just any old day that these things happened. It was a particular annual day when Pilate would agree to release one of the prisoners and a prisoner of their choosing. Pilate was also known to be a major antagonist of the Jews. He didn't like them. He was quite outspoken about the fact that he didn't like them. And we see it happen. Like he asked them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They would have hated that title spoken of Jesus. And that's his, would you like to me, you to have the king of the Jews? Would you like your king? Even says, because he knows that they handed him over because of envy. So he's actually driven by wanting to stir them up. But the chief priests and all of the people, they asked for Barabbas, a guy who'd led a revolt against the Romans, a guy who had murdered in the process of doing that. So often when you hear people talk about Barabbas, you hear people say, they took this wicked man that would have been so repulsive to them instead of their perfect saviour in Jesus. But the reality is, if this man led a revolt against the Romans, he was probably considered a bit of a hero amongst the Jews, despite the fact that he did murder along the way. But Pilate, who loves a good stir, goes back to him and says, what do you want me to do with this one that you call the king of the Jews? They didn't call him the king of the Jews. Their answer is very clear. Crucify him. That was the goal from day one. Crucify him. Nothing else would satisfy them. Remember the night before as they were gathered, what's our case for this guy? They couldn't come up with anything despite all of their best efforts. Now when Pilate asks why, what's he done wrong? Or in Luke's gospel account, Pilate actually declares him innocent on three occasions. They don't answer Pilate's question, what's he done wrong? They've just got to go, crucify him, crucify him. And then not because he's convinced of a case, but more just because he wants to shut them up, Pilate delivers them over to be mocked, beaten, and crucified. Not because he thought Jesus deserved it. Matter of fact, he's very publicly said Jesus didn't deserve it, he's innocent. Not worthy of such a punishment. So what? If you're reading it for the first time, it sounds like a bit of a strange story, doesn't it? That here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, yet you've got Pilate, a Roman, that is a Gentile, who's publicly known to hate the Jews, declares him to be innocent. Yet on the other hand, you've got the Jewish religious leaders say, crucify him. And as they claim, crucify him, crucify him. And he becomes crucified. They are unknowingly fulfilling prophecy. 
and granting to Jesus the very thing that he came for. As Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Pilate had reached his verdict on Jesus and the religious leaders had reached their verdict of Jesus as well. But what's your verdict? Unlike the Chamberlain case in the introduction, your verdict does matter. Your verdict does have genuine implications for your life, but now and for the future. There's not a single person in this world who is neutral with regards to Jesus. Everyone has an opinion. Whether they articulate it or not, everyone has a stand somewhere with regards to Jesus. Either you believe that he is who he says he is, that the Bible proclaims him to be, that the Bible proclaims him to be the creator, the one who owns and lovingly rules all things, that we have turned our back upon to thanks for all the stuff, but get out of my life, that we're guilty of rebelling against, that we deserve his punishment, and that Jesus came to die to take it for us. Or, if you don't think he's who the Bible says he is, you don't want anything to do with him. Remember the Jewish leaders? They watched him closely. They watched him like a hawk. And when they conspired, came together and said, what's the case we're going to bring against him? They couldn't find anything. And the same it is for all of us. When you look at who Jesus Christ is, you either respond to the facts that are presented before you, or the only way to take another position is to completely skew and deny the facts that are before you. They accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer and in doing so become blasphemers who like every single one of us will one day stand before this one they demanded to be crucified to give an account. The one who himself said will be coming in the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. So it's exactly the same today. You read the Gospels. If you accept them to be true, if you respond to what is proclaimed before you, it's the best news you've ever heard. But some of you might read the same information and find it inconvenient because you realise that to, to turn and live to trust in Jesus Christ is going to require some changes. And if you want to avoid it, it won't be based on evidence. It'll be based upon you twisting it to make it seem irrelevant. Whether that's dismissing the Bible, even though it's been proven to be the most historically reliable ancient text that we have, no one questions the historical documents regarding Julius Caesar, yet his things are far less reliable than what we have about Jesus. So you either do something like that or you totally reinterpret Jesus, saying God's love, Jesus loves, therefore everyone will be sweet. That's not the way Jesus spoke. But even in the middle of that trial, the beauty of the gospel is on display. 
You see Barabbas, whose name actually means son of the father, a man who is definitely guilty, definitely deserving of death, who is released, who is set free, while the innocent, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, bears the punishment. When the real son of the father bears the punishment as the innocent one, the guilty goes free. Easter isn't the focus point of Christianity just because it's impressive that someone died and came back to life three days later. But because every single one of us had a death sentence. And because the innocent died in our place, we as the guilty can go free. As Peter so eloquently put it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's close in prayer as we give thanks for Christ's work on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we can only call upon you as our Father because of what Jesus has done. We don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. By nature, we we turned our back and rebelled against you. Yet we can be set free from the consequences of our actions because Jesus took our punishment. He died our death. He rose again that we might have new life. God, we can't thank you enough for what you have done in Jesus for us. Lord, as you have given us new life, help us to to walk in newness of life, in dependence upon you. Help us to remember what you have saved us from. But help us also to be mindful of those who live around us whom we love and care for deeply, who are born with that exact same predicament, who are guilty before you, because of our natural tendency to rebel, want to live our own life. May we love them enough to share the good news of what Jesus has done to set them free by the blood of of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.